the abounding joy of New Testament hope. This is part 17. How faith and sin are each generated by where our hope is placed. This morning we're looking at the subject of discouragement. I have a number of texts I want to read and we'll return to the text as we work our way through the the message. Psalm 42.5 Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. So there's the, the hope thing. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. Matthew 26, 36 to 38. Then Jesus went with them to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. So there's this distance between him and the disciples. Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. Sorrowful even unto death. And he's not talking about his death on the cross at that point. He's talking about something he's experiencing right at that moment. Remain here and watch with me. Hebrews 5, 7 and 8. Again, this is Jesus. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with With loud cries. What did that sound like? And tears. To him who was able to save him from death. He was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he he learned obedience through what he suffered. That's a fascinating phrase. Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. One more. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I like this idea, a race that's set before us. You you look at your life and you think it's just random and God has this God has this course that you're on. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And then this, who, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Great texts, all of them. Come in these next moments, Holy Spirit, and, and just Carve your will and way deeply into our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're continuing our study of the power of biblical hope, and specifically we're studying the way the object of our hope affects our growth in either holiness or sinfulness. Either way, what you hope in directs your life. And then we've been looking specifically for about the last five weeks, at the tools Satan uses to shift our hope from God to anything else. Today we're going to continue to consider the way Satan uses discouragement to shift our hope from God alone. 
It is different, though. I want to start out by saying discouragement, unlike bitterness or materialism. Discouragement is a part of our frailty that isn't treated in God's word as a sin in itself. Uh, In some ways, it's almost become more sinful as a result of the boom in the 70s, 80s, 90s of the whole word faith movement, which is virtually dying out now just through theological extremes. All sorts of evils were blamed on discouragement, especially when it was voiced out loud in what was termed as a negative confession. But that's always been a theological stretch. So life gets us down at times. And I don't think the Bible treats that in itself as a sin against God. But that doesn't mean discouragement isn't dangerous to the life of faith and the life of holiness. It is. Discouragement, while not necessarily sinful in and of itself, it's another one of the tools that Satan uses to to spawn other sins by robbing us of confidence in God's grace, his future grace for our lives, and, and when hope in God dies, when hope in God dies, sin is always right around the corner. Let me say that again. When hope in God dies, sin is always right around the corner. So discouragement while not sinful in itself, it's the soil in which all sorts of false hopes can germinate and thrive. That's what we want to look at. Discouragement destroys hope in God when, whenever the circumstances of life seem to cut off my future. That, that's the hope-killing work of discouragement that Satan delights in. We're talking about seasons of heart where the the weight of the journey just seems to block out all the light, all the sense of God's presence. And it seems to me that the Bible, both by instruction and by example, it it tries to prepare us in advance for, for the arrival of dark times in our lives. One of the things that David referred to in his famous shepherd-like description of his walk with God, was the necessity of times when his soul was restored. Restored in God's renewing strength. What he means is, he reestablished his hope in God alone. He steeled his resolve against the pull of discouragement, to distrust God or to blame God or to lose confidence in God for his future joy, his future satisfaction, his future security. When everything else seemed to cut off his future, he, he, he restored, his soul was restored by saying, but surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's that process of restoration. So again, the problem with despondency, discouragement, like pride, anxiety, materialism, bitterness, those things that we looked at, is the way discouragement opens up the life to a host of other sins. It can lead to anger with God. 
very commonly, let me tell you, I've just seen it over and over. Discouragement very commonly leads people to separate themselves from the body of Christ and just stay home. I don't want to be a hypocrite and go and worship when I'm feeling dark and gloomy and and they forget. Hypocrisy is not the only sin you can commit. Forsaking your assembling together, that's another sin you can commit. (laughs) It can also lead us to attempt to stimulate some kind of joy in our hearts with material goods, food, recreational pursuits, things that can turn addictive. We place our hope in anything that will chase away the grayness of life. Despondency has to be brought to the word of God. There's just nothing else righteous to do with it. I'm not not talking this morning, please, just about developing a positive mental outlook or coming over to the sunny side of the street possibility thinking, having a good self-image. I'm not saying any of those things is sinful in itself, but they aren't soul-reviving. So I'm not talking about, well, you know, keep your chin up. Or pretending things are better than they are. What I'm talking about this morning isn't make-believe. Make-believe is miles away from hope in God. So I just want to be as practical as I can be how to restore how to restore and keep your hope in God. That's what we're looking at. Point number 1. Hope for God's future grace like faith begins by asserting truths that can't for the moment be easily sensed. You have to start where you are. Hebrews 11:1 1, Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Remember I said before, it's very hard to actually separate faith and hope. Faith and hope are not like sections of an orange you can pull apart. They're more like a banana, one piece. They're blended together. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And then, then, as if to make it clearer, the conviction of things not seen. The conviction of things not seen. You don't see them yet. So, so the battle that we will face with despondency and discouragement is more than just a battle with fatigue. That can play into it. We're not just detached spirits. We're, we're in physical bodies. But there's a spiritual component to keeping your hope in God when discouragement lingers. In addition to whatever might be happening... Among the threads of your circumstances, there's another factor that you have to bring into play. Satan is a master opportunist. He loves, says Peter, to find people who are beaten down, people people who are weary, people who are lonely. You've seen on those National Geographic things the way lions hunt and they're going after wildebeest, but they don't pick the great big male bull with horns out to there. They run around and run around until they can separate one that's young or old or lame. And they get it by itself. Remember I said people get discouraged and they stay home from church? And they get him alone. 
and they make their attack. So Peter says that discouragement has that, has that tendency to make us vulnerable. People who have high hope in God, even though they're suffering, are unbeatable. But discouraged Christians, we've all been there, they're like those vulnerable newborns or elderly or lame that the lion attacks. And you, you, just, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know when your life is getting tough. That much you can usually figure out all by yourself. It doesn't take a lot of prayer. You and I can't live long without challenges and trials. It's just common to all of us. But there are times when the devil comes just strategically to... It's not just your circumstances now. It's, it's painting your whole future dark. He sows doubt in God's promise. And, and that's when, that's when the situation hits a shift point. It's not just the circumstances now. It's not just the trial. Things will either get better spiritually or they will get much worse. Here's the moment where discernment has to be sharpened. All spiritual resources need to be on the alert. The devil is now coming and he's about to paint your mind with a lie. He's right there. The nature of the battle changes. It shifts from just your circumstances to your mind and your heart. So, so the real battle now isn't just against bad health, a difficult boss, an overcrowded work schedule, an unsafe spouse, a lack of finances. All of those things might be true, but none of those things is what Satan is even remotely interested in. It's your hope in God. That's all he cares about. He's not the least bit interested in your bank account, your investments, your job. He couldn't care less. It's, what are you looking to now? Where's your hope? At a certain point in the battle with discouragement, it shifts. It shifts toward something that is distinctly spiritual, though you might not notice it if you're not alert. It's always your hope in God. That's what he's always after. So the battle you begin to face in despondency and discouragement becomes a battle against unbelief. Unbelief in the promises of God. Unbelief in the character of God. Unbelief in God's future grace for your life. The temptation is to place your hope where, you know what? I have a plan that I think will bring more immediate results than what God has. I can fix this. I've got an idea. My wife has never understood me. Why am I staying in this stupid marriage? I've got a plan. And the hope shifts to something else immediate rather than trust in the character of God. Discouragement makes hope in God hard won because you always have to fight your initial reflexes. You have to bank on grace you can't see yet. Paul gets the order right. In Romans chapter 8, 24 to 26, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope, this seems obvious, doesn't it? Hope that is seen 
is not hope. He's going to say, in my paraphrase, nobody hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, see this? We wait for it. And, And here's the thing. This is how you cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Likewise, the Spirit, that's not small s, that's the Holy Spirit. He helps us in our weaknesses. How does he help us? Is it magic? No. Keep your hope in God. If you want to bring the Holy Spirit into your circumstances, however muddled and dark they feel like they are, if you want to bring the Holy Spirit in, keep hoping in God. Keep trusting in God. Keep waiting on God. Do it with patience. Yeah, but that's just, I don't know, that's just kind of like sitting around, just waiting. That's why he says, no, that's when, that's when you invite the Holy Spirit to come. He comes. But he doesn't come to people rushing off to do their own thing. He comes to people who wait in hope on God. In this hope we were saved. My ongoing salvation not just my decision to accept Christ my ongoing salvation it's tied to banking on unseen hopes this is how the Holy Spirit bears down on the work of the enemy in shifting your hope from God I love this the way the psalmist there's such a determination here my flesh and my heart may fail That's his way of saying, I could drop dead before I finish this sentence. Wouldn't that be something in this service? But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I could drop dead right now, but it doesn't change this. God's my portion. I love that word, the way he uses that word portion. Note it. Your, your, your portion, think of a meal. Your portion is what you feed on. It's where you find nourishment when discouragement leaves the rest of your life feeling empty. Like there's no nourishment, nothing to feed on. God is my portion. Go there. Stay there. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. Two. We've got to go quicker. The power of hope isn't so much from listening to your heart as it is from speaking to your heart. I read a really, really good book. The title just grabbed my attention. I ordered it on Amazon. Christian book. It's called Never Never Trust Your Own Heart. It's just the opposite, isn't it? Follow your heart. Follow your heart. Follow your dreams. And here's a guy that's wise enough to say, no, 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 don't, don't trust your heart. Put your hope in God. Psalm 43, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? So so the you is not a different person from the psalmist. The you is the psalmist himself. But he addresses it as you. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. 
For I shall again, he's not right now, I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. It's true, it's true that Paul says faith comes from hearing. I I didn't get a slide for this and it was my fault. But there's a verse of scripture that under this second point is so important. It's Romans 10, 17. But you'll know it. Romans 10, 17 says this. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Okay? Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And the reason I wanted to read it twice is the text doesn't say what most people think it says. The text doesn't say faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. You want to grow in faith, then read your Bible. That's the way everybody reads the text. But it's not what the text says. It says hearing comes from the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Do you see the difference? The the very ability to hear things properly, to, to assess things properly. The capacity to hear it all comes from knowing the truth of the word of Christ. The word of Christ is the truth that makes genuine attentiveness possible. The word of Christ grows faith because it's the only thing that expels the darkness that tries to surface in all of our hearts. You don't, when you're discouraged, despondent, everything seems dark and hopeless, you don't read the Bible because it's going to make you feel better. You read the Bible because it gives you the capacity to hear God at all. You won't assess your situation accurately without reading God's word. You won't measure things right without reading God's word. You you won't be able to respond to what God wants you to do next. And it's not just knowing the content, not just knowing what the verse says, but the ability to hear God speak to your soul that comes as you feed your heart on God's word, even when you don't think it's saying anything to you at that moment. I think that was an important point. Because I think what we do is, oh, I'm just so bleak and nobody knows what I'm facing. Great. Didn't do anything. Paul says, no, no, stay, stay here. Stay here. Because what, what will happen is it's not just a verse is going to jump out at you and give you fuzzies. It's that your, your perspective on things will gradually change. Your circumstances might not change a hoot. But the way your capacity to know what's the right thing to do That's going to grow as you stay in. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes from the Word of God. In other words, without this, you just, you do this. Put both fingers as tight as you can in your ears. Okay? Go ahead and do it. Tight as you can. Push them all the way in. So how's that feel? What's that do to you? And all you do is you just see my lips moving. You can't hear. The capacity to hear 
Oh, oh, that's what this is about. Oh, that's what's happening here. That comes from God's word. You and I will never overcome discouragement and replace it with hope in God by just listening to our own hearts. After 44 years of pastoring, I was trying to think and figure out what single book I've recommended to more people in their time of trial and discouragement than any other. And without a doubt, the book that I've passed on to more people than any other is Spiritual Depression. Not Clinical Depression. Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cure by Martin Lloyd-Jones. I've had three hardback copies. I've worn them all out. They've fallen apart. And I had another one, and I foolishly loaned it to someone. And if you're sitting here, I'm hoping God convicts you. It's simply a priceless book. And in it, he comments on that Psalm 43, 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's dead now, but here's what he says about, about that one verse. Here's what he says. I say that we must learn to talk to ourselves instead of allowing ourselves to talk to us. Do you realize what that means? I suggest that the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual despondency, in a sense, is this. That we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. I'm not just being paradoxical. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Someone is talking to you. Who's talking to your mind? It is the enemy, or it is that old self. Now, the psalmist's treatment was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, Self, listen for a moment and I will speak to you. Why are you so cast down? What is disquieting you? And then you must go on and remind yourself of the faithfulness, the goodness of God, who he is, what he has already done, what he has promised in his word he will yet do. This is what you must say to yourself. You stand against the old self. You stand against the mocking crowd. You stand against the whole world, if need be, and proclaim with this psalmist, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. That's just great advice. The world will tell you that happiness comes from listening to your heart, from listening to your own dreams, from loving your own inner light, from entering the inner quiet and meditating on your inner self. People keep journals. People keep diaries. That can be both good and bad, in my experience. If you're not careful, journals can frequently reinforce sinful thought patterns because they merely journal what you're already feeling. Probably 
People like that think they're being honest with their hearts. But maybe what people need to do in their journals and diaries is not merely put down in words what their heart is feeling, but maybe to write down on paper what they need to be saying to their heart, what God's word says to their heart. I think that way a journal can be a powerful tool for spiritual life. Your heart's feelings scream out for attention, but to just sit and listen to your heart, it's risky because here's what the Bible says about Don Horbin's heart. It says it's, it's uh, deceitful and desperately wicked. So is yours. Your heart lies to you all the time. Point number three. Like everything else we need to know, our Lord actually modeled this in his incarnate, complete humanity in the darkest hour of his life. And there were three texts that I read that are, that are profoundly difficult texts. Hebrews 5, 7, and 8 is the first one. In the days of his flesh, so this is in his incarnate condition here on earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Okay, think about that one. Now Matthew 26. These are all about Jesus. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Why would he just take those three people with him? Leaves them rest, but he wants, he wants witnesses to what he's going to pray because it's unbelievable. That's what I think is happening here. If nobody went with him, we wouldn't have a record of this. So he doesn't need all the disciples with him. But these three, come, I, I want you with me when I'm praying this prayer. Interesting. 38. Then he began to say to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch with me. And then going on a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as, but as you will. One more text. Be patient. Looking to Jesus. So we're supposed to be thinking about Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. What are we supposed to be thinking about when we look at Jesus? Well, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, there's three texts. And, and uh, we almost don't know what to do with them. They, they take our minds just to the very edge of the mystery of the Incarnation. We know we long for the presence of Jesus when we pray, right? But we don't usually consider that Jesus actually longed for his disciples' presence when he prayed. And then there's that idea of Jesus learning obedience by what he suffered. We've got to do something with that. Certainly he didn't learn obedience as though he was ever disobedient. That can't be because he never sinned. He never disobeyed the Father in any way. So why, how do you learn obedience? 
And then what is it that Jesus learned? How does this, all of this relate to the subject of, of uh, despondency, depression, discouragement, the soul's dark hour? And let me just humbly try and pull some threads together as we wrap up. A, the trials that Jesus faced were genuine, discouraging trials that reached right down to the bottom of his soul. It's very easy to get the idea that the incarnation is just God, God Almighty, uh, putting skin and bones on. And that's not the incarnation. It's not just God putting skin and bones on. It's, it's God becoming as fully human as I am human. The whole thing. Not just divinity masked in a body. But Jesus being fully, fully human. As fully human as anyone in this room. So what I mean by that is he doesn't face this situation the way Superman would leap over a tall building. Jesus wasn't just imitating a struggling human being. He became one. He was tempted in all points, just like we are. So, what I'm saying is, he didn't just cruise through this situation on automatic pilot. What can Matthew mean when he says, Jesus' soul was so sorrowful, troubled in some translations, so sorrowful within him that he, he thought he was going to die before he reached the cross? I mean, what, what do you have to be feeling? Maybe you can relate in some small way to that. Do, do, you ever feel, do you ever feel that the darkness is just so real, so deep, that it's going to just suck the life right out of you? That's, that's what Jesus is talking about. He knows what that's like. B, in some way that's hard to fully understand, the Bible says Jesus learned obedience from his trials. It's quite a phrase. Not that he was ever disobedient, but, but here's, here's the thing. He certainly had never experienced anything like this before. The man, Jesus Christ, is for the very first time taking on the sin of the world in a way that created a distance between him and the Father. My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? The only prayer in the New Testament, the only prayer in the New Testament where Jesus doesn't call God Father. That's significant. It's really significant. There's something, there's something of a separation there that, that we can't, it doesn't register with us the same way. Can you imagine? And then Jesus prays. He prays the words that make all the angels gasp. If it's possible, let, let this cup be taken from me. Do you, do you believe Jesus actually said that, first off? How many say, yes, he actually said that? What, what can this mean? He's praying, at least momentarily, for something different than the Father's will. 
Do you dare say that? Isn't that what he's doing? Father, let this... No, no, not this. Let this be removed. It's just momentary. Nevertheless, not, not my will. Yours. And maybe that's where the learning part comes in. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Not that Jesus ever disobeyed the Father, but all through eternity past, in the perfect fellowship of the Godhead, the Father's will was an automatically shared will all the time. That's all Jesus has known. And there was never anything other than joy in the sharing of that will. Then, for the first time ever, there's despondency. There's despair in that same will. And for the first time ever, the son learns to surrender his will to the father. He must place his hope in the future that's still out of reach, still out of sight, for the joy that was set before him. He endured those things. He never had to do that before. Here are the lessons to learn from Jesus in our dark hour. Point number four. He calls close friends to be with him. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Even though he'll go on alone as he prays, it will, it will help Jesus to have friends close by, united with him in prayerful intercession. And we need to just learn, learn with great care here. If all Jesus needed was to connect with his inner self, find his own inner space and peace, then being alone would have been fine. But inner tranquility and spiritual strength aren't the same thing. He prayed alone, but he didn't want to pray all alone. The greatest mistake in finding hope in God in the face of discouragement is also the most common the most common reflex reaction when your heart is discouraged and troubled is to withdraw. You're wounded. You're discouraged. No one understands. No one seems to care. Your prayers aren't being answered. And you need Jesus to teach to resist the temptation to just separate from everyone. This, this process of spiritual discovery and renewed hope, that it's a corporate experience, not an individual experience. It's really outlined beautifully in Psalm 73. Psalm 73, the famous psalm dealing with this topic. Verses 12 to 17. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean, washed my hands in innocence, for all day long I've, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, now see what he's doing? He's talking to himself. If I had said this, I'm going to say this. I would have... I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Isn't that interesting? Others, others will benefit from the psalmist's faithfulness. And he thinks about that. 
not just him. There's a togetherness in this thing. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. And then I went into the sanctuary of God. Get back there. And then I discerned their end. I think the psalmist was growing weary. Weary of mind, discouraged in heart over issues that made no sense to him. He didn't see any prospect of things changing. And he was about to give it all up. He was about to pack it all in. And there comes this burst of enlightenment. And when does it come? Not in the prayer closet. Then I went into the house of God. Keep the lights on in your soul. Sanctuary isn't just for emotional relief. It isn't just some positive mood that you set through the right kind of music. This troubled psalmist says, I, I, couldn't, get, I couldn't get the right picture of the truth. I couldn't figure out what was going on. That's what he means, a brute beast. I had a, as much understanding as a donkey. That's what he's saying. And then I entered the sanctuary, and I, and I just started to see things differently. Back to what we learned from Jesus. So he, he doesn't want to be alone. Two, he opens up his soul. He says, my soul is deeply troubled to the point of death. Should a good leader tell people that? Should the Son of God ever say that? He doesn't bluff. There's honesty. See, he asks for the disciples' prayer. Stay here. Keep watch with me. We know from verse 41 that he meant interceding prayer. I hope that when we do prayer groups Sunday night, you know, Ron will get up here tonight and he'll say, pray about this, pray about this, pray about this, pray about this. And I often wonder, I kind of walk around the room and see people praying together. And I often wonder, are people going to stop and say, my soul is just troubled. And you're my Christian brothers and sisters. Pray for me that God lifts me up and strengthens me. That's, that's what's supposed to happen in those kinds of ministry times. I'm going to jump to the last point. He fixed his eyes on the glorious future grace that awaited him on the other side of the cross. You'll see it in the last text, Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus. You can't see Jesus, right? I mean, he's not here physically. What's he mean, looking to Jesus? Where, where is he? What does he mean? He means, look at this about Jesus. Consider this about Jesus. Who, who for the joy that was set before him, Endured the cross, despising the shame, seated at the right hand of the throne of of God. The time of uh, darkness, it's, it's not a cave. It is a tunnel, might be a long one. The devil is lying to your heart. It's what he does. It's what he does all the time. Weeping, weeping lasts for a night. Or a week, or a month, or years. Joy comes in the morning. There is nothing in your life or mine. The night is far gone. 
the day is at hand. There is nothing in your life or mine that will extinguish Jesus coming again to receive you into glory and a new creation in which dwells nothing but hope, joy, and righteousness. all that Jesus went through, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. You mix that. That's there. You mix it with but for the joy that was set before him. You keep going in God's will. Everyone said we do thank you Lord Jesus for thank you for truth that works when nothing else seems to. Thank you for hope that can endure the trials of life and the lies of the enemy. Help us to keep looking at this about Jesus. We are redeemed. We stand here redeemed through the blood of the cross because Jesus was thinking about the joy that was set before him. There's fruit in keeping hope in God. And so, and so I pray for people who are in this room this morning or will see this online who are, who are just at a place where they're starting to lose their grip. And help them, Father, to hope in your grip on their lives, your unending love. And as they read your word, let hearing come from the word of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.